Welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And Cam, what are we doing this week? We're hopping in our gyroplanes, or maybe it was a gyrocopter, I can't remember, and going back to 1935 to hang out with Alfred Hitchcock for the 39 Steps. We're going to have to be careful here because it's 1935, 39 Steps. There's a lot of numbers involved. That's right. Yeah, and we talked just a couple weeks ago about Matahari from 31. We're all about the 30s right now. I, I love it in black and white. That's right. Um, now, I had not seen this film before we tackled it for this podcast. Had you seen it before? Yeah. So when I was probably 17 years old, um, I'd always been a big movie fan, but I decided in my teens, you know, kind of that last year of high school or something to get more into classic films. And so I started going to the library and renting whatever kind of popped out, you know, movies that I would recognize from pop culture. So stuff like Citizen Kane, um, you know, Taxi Driver, things like that. But I remember watching Psycho and really loving it, watching The Birds and really loving it. And so I was on a hunt for more Alfred Hitchcock stuff. And my library just happened to have a copy of The 39 Steps. They didn't have a lot else, but they had The 39 Steps. And so I went home and watched it and really enjoyed it a lot. Um, But it's one I had not seen since for whatever reason. Um, It wasn't included in any of the Hitchcock box sets that came out on DVD and Blu-ray forever. And it was only until fairly recently I got the Criterion. But I feel like my most recent experience with 39 Steps was actually seeing a play version um, here in Vancouver um, that uh, showed at my actually my old college. They had a theater troupe there and they put on a production of the 39 Steps. And um, it was done as more of a spoof of Hitchcock tropes. It wasn't like a straightforward, you know adaptation of the 39 steps it was more of let's take the framework and make a comedy out of it Mm -hmm. and uh, it was very entertaining actually had a good time watching it so i would assume that's probably the 39th remake of the 39 steps there are a lot of remakes of the 39 steps you are right it's interesting because it's based on a john buchan um novel and there's an actual series of books but if you look up john buchan on imdb it seems like People only want to remake the 39 steps. I guess he's really uh, disappointed that no one wants to pick up the the 40 walks or the 41 <laughs> runs. And then you get to the final one and it's like the 57 limps. <laughs> now, before we crack on uh, with how this film came to be, I'd be remiss if we didn't tackle the synopsis. Uh, so we have a bit of a history with older films where they're quite short so hopefully it uh, holds up here we go the 39 steps handcuffed to the girl who double-crossed him richard hanny stumbles upon a conspiracy that thrusts him into a hectic chase across the scottish moors a chase in which he is both the pursuer and the pursued as well as into an unexpected romance with the cool pamela Oh, man. Like, I feel like the whole chase part is pretty effective. And then you get to that awkward last sentence, and it really brought my grade down to a B-. minus. Yeah, even I stumbled over that last sentence. It didn't feel like it it flowed particularly well. No, it was kind of like an afterthought. It's like he kind of nailed it, or he or she, whoever wrote this, nailed it. 
And um, then was like, oh, crap, I forgot the romance with Pamela. Got to tack that on at the end there. So very inelegant. I, I don't want to show my hand, but uh, I think this film just sort of tacks the romance on with Pamela too. But hey-ho. <laughs> um, so tell me, Cam, how did this film come to be? So this film um, was happening right around the time that Hitchcock was really kind of beginning to slowly make a real name for himself. Um, he'd been pretty popular in Britain really since uh, a movie he did called The Lodger, which was in the 20s. It was a silent film, but sort of a riff on Jack the Ripper. But the rest of the world hadn't really caught on to Hitchcock yet. And so he cranked out uh, quite a few movies, um, most notably The Man Who Knew Too Much, which had come out in 1934, which was an espionage film. Um, Peter Laurie plays like the villain in that one. And that film was a big hit in Britain. And got some exposure overseas. It wasn't quite yet the crossover hit that he wanted, but it was definitely kind of like that, you know, it was that movie that was just prepared to tip him over into something. And so Hitchcock decided he wanted to make an adaptation of John Buchan's Richard Hannay series, but he wanted to do the second book, Green Mantle. And Green Mantle is another uh, Richard uh, Hannay story that, involves a lot of European and Middle Eastern loca- locales, and it was set during World War I and involved a German plot and an Islamic messiah. And Hitchcock had been a huge fan of the series when he was a teenager and wanted to make that second one, but felt it was just a little too expensive to tackle, so he went with the first one. I'm curious, Scott, if um, Green Mantle sounds like something that would interest you. No, I, I think I'd rather watch The 40 Runs. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> And so, yeah, um, Hitchcock handed over the, um, the, tr- the, the book of the 39 Steps to writer Charles Bennett. And he'd had a bit of a history with Charles Bennett. Charles Bennett wrote a play called Blackmail um, that Hitchcock turned into the 1929 film um, that's actually really good. It's worth checking out. Not one of the classic Hitchcocks, but a, a really good one. And so he, he really... I guess, vibed with Charles Bennett's writing and brought him in to actually write films for him. And so Charles Bennett wrote The Man Who Knew Too Much, and he would go on to write a lot of the other um, espionage films for Hitchcock, like Foreign Correspondent and Secret Agent. And so this is the two of them following up their success of The Man Who Knew Too Much. And a big part of what sold this movie for the studio was, this was a British-produced film, but they were really looking at getting crossover appeal in the u.s because hitchcock as i said had been big in britain but not particularly big in the u.s yet and they looked at this film as being the one that would do it the job um and so a lot of the decisions behind the scenes were focused on getting that appeal especially when it came to casting uh robert denat um had recently had crossover success in america he's born in britain but you know, at this point, he was shooting the Count of Monte Cristo film in um, in America, and they looked at him as being someone that could easily sell as a movie star in America. Um, and he would go on, actually, in 1940 to win the Oscar for Best Actor in Goodbye, Mr. Chips, where he plays, you know, this beloved school teacher. And Goodbye, Mr. Chips is very much the, um, the movie that uh, kind of spawned all the imitators like Dead Poet Society and the Emperor's Club and all those sorts of things, Mr. Holland's Opus. Um, but yeah, so Donat was really brought in 
because they thought he could be a U.S. movie star, as well as um, the role of Pamela. Now, they cast an actor named Jane Baxter, but they began to decide along the way that they wanted Pamela to be a bigger part of the story. And so they actually recast her with Madeline Carroll, who definitely had some notability as well that they felt they could market in the U.S. Um, Her profile was rising at the time. Now, this really didn't work out maybe quite as much as they thought. The movie was a hit overseas, but it wasn't like a massive, massive hit. It was very big in Britain, though. Um, so the way the, the year kind of shook out was this movie had a budget of $78,000. Um, and the best number I could find, and I, I have real questions about these numbers, because once again, when we're talking about 1935 box office, um, the uh, the charts and stats on this aren't necessarily the most reliable. I'm trying to think of a good metaphor but um, I don't know, Scott, do you have a spy metaphor for unreliable uh, information? <laughs> How about questionable intel? Very good. I like it. So that's the, that tends to be the case when you're looking at, you know, box office of the 1930s. So the number I found was it grows 700,000 US, which equals like, I don't know, like 14 million or something, 13 million um, adjusted for inflation. But like... That sounds so low, but then when you think about it, um, $78,000 investment making $700,000 US is pretty darn good, actually. That's a very good return on your investment. Well, it's tenfold, isn't it, basically? Yeah. Yeah. From what I read, this movie, um, in terms of North America, hit pretty big in New York and Boston and a couple other major cities, but it didn't have, you know, throughout the US appeal. Like, it was very much tied to some of the major cities. So um, the movie, though, was instrumental in getting the attention of mega producer David O. Selznick. A handful of years later, Selznick would be responsible for bringing Hitchcock over to the U.S. to do Rebecca um, around 1939. And so, you know, the movie may not have been like the box office smash we associate with Hitchcock, but it did, I guess, grab the right eyeballs. Yeah, it does certainly feel like it's got all of the the uh, hitchcock tropes oh yeah i guess would be the word yeah his yeah. tick boxes are all there oh totally yeah and so the movie um from what i could find was um very big in britain it was the 17th biggest film of the year i could not tell you what the biggest film of the year was <laughs> how did you know it was 17th that's what i found listed in digging into uh, my research that said it was the 17th biggest film in britain that year and I have, once again, questions about the intel on that, but um, the sources I was getting it from were pretty good, so I, I don't know. Uh, I could not find a top 20 list, though, that would sum up the year of 1935 in Britain. I mean, putting you on the spot for a second, but what are some other notable films that came out in 35? Well, in terms of British-produced films, oh boy, I don't really know. Uh, there was Sanders of the River, I know that one, which was based on the stories of Edgar Wallace, um, and it was shot in um, in Africa. And it was actually kind of notable because um, Alfred Hitchcock's name was associated with that project. He was kind of dabbling with potentially directing it, but he ended up dropping out and it got taken over by someone else. And that movie was apparently the, the 11th most popular film in Britain that year. So Sanders of the River, I don't know. Um, I read about it. Uh, sounds problematic, but uh, I guess in uh, 1935, uh, it was reasonably successful. 
I, mean, I, I could offer you no information whatsoever. So if that's the best you've got, we're going with that. <laughs> yeah, but the top three for that year, um, pretty much in worldwide box office, were uh, number one was Mutiny on the Bounty with Clark Gable and Charles Lawton, mm-hmm. um, which is an amazing film, won Best Picture that year at the Oscars. Uh, number two was Top Hat, the Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers musical, which is one of their best ones. Um, and then number three was China Seas, starring um, Clark Gable and Gene uh, Harlow. That was an adventure sort of action film. I've never seen it. Um, when you look up uh, reviews of it online, um, it tends to, you know, be kind of scored at one of those like 6.9 kind of ratings versus like Mutiny on the Bounty or Top Hat, which are like the eights or something. You know, they're mm-hmm. much more, I think they're much more well-remembered the China Seas, but I think it's very notable that Clark Gable is in both the first and the third um, highest grossing of the year. Um, he was a major star at the time. And um, I think he had a certain effect actually on the 39 steps I'll talk about in a little bit. Um, one other thing of note I should mention um the 39 Steps was the highest earning British film ever in Canada. So uh, my, my country here, we were very excited about the 39 Steps in 1935. And that is largely because the author of the story, um, John Buchan, who wrote the book, was our new governor general at the time. Oh. <laughs> who knew? I, yeah, I thought you were going down a different path with that one. Right? Okay. That was something when I found in my research, I was like, what? <laughs> and and for those who don't have governor generals, which is at least the USA and the UK, what what is that in terms of you know, bureaucracy? Where does that sit? Is that like prime minister or? So basically the governor general title um, makes you the federal vice regal representative of the Canadian monarch. Basically, they preside over the federal executive council. So there you have it. That is far more boring than I hoped for. Yeah, it's really not the most exciting when you actually read about it because it's one of those titles that I've seen a couple of the um, former governor generals give talks at schools when I was a kid. Like they would do, you know, speaking tours. Um, but it was always one of those titles that you're kind of like, like, what, what, what? And I mean, um, former guest of the show, Tyler Orton, would be embarrassed to hear me saying this, uh, that uh, I'm not that familiar with what they do because he's much more up on this sort of thing. But um, yeah, uh, there you have it. <laughs> See, I, I genuinely thought you would say it was popular in Canada because the main character is Canadian. I know, right? Like, that's what you would assume. Um, yeah. But actually, you can find posters for this movie where they trumpet the fact that the Governor General was associated with the film. I mean, to be fair, you have Arnold Schwarzenegger going around still calling himself the Governator and stuff. So, yeah, they, they'll do it now. Yeah. So big deal back in the day. Um, and then I guess just the last thing I'll mention was that the British Film Institute awarded this film the title of the fourth best British film of the 20th century um, a handful of years ago. So there you have it. Where did the Ipcris file fall on that list? Number one, Scott, the greatest film of all time. <laughs> I'm more of a funeral in Berlin kind of guy. <laughs> I don't think it was number one. Um, I don't remember where it ranked, but it was... Uh, it was it was up there, like it was on the it was in the you know contender list. Well, I, I think that probably segues us quite well into what we thought about the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, which I'll start off with. I liked this more than the Ipcris file. <laughs> Be that a good or a bad thing, listeners. I I I found myself more drawn to this film than that one. Uh, it was certainly 
an interesting film. Again, I was proven wrong on my sort of anything made before 1950s, a bit of a snooze fest opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was quite quite riveting. I found it funny, uh, quite an interesting story. Yeah, I was really curious what you'd think of this one because we talked about North by Northwest, um, you know, in our like second real episode. And that one is kind of like, the Hitchcock, you know, opus. Like this is one of Hitchcock where he's got all the resources in the world mm-hmm. telling this kind of espionage story with every resource available, you know, to a filmmaker at that point in time. And so I was very curious what you'd think of this one going back to the beginning when, again, like $78,000 budget. <laughs> you know, this is obviously Hitchcock working with much more limitations. He's not a quite a huge name yet. And seeing kind of a more stripped down version of the North by Northwest kind of story. It's certainly night and day between the two. I mean, they probably spent $78,000 just building Lincoln's nose. <laughs> totally. Yeah, that's the thing. In those days, um, you know, when you get to Hitchcock's big period in the US, they were just throwing money at him. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, it, it wasn't lost on me, the similarities between those two films. I actually started a column uh, in my notes comparing the films and I have quite a lot of similarities I've I've picked up on. It'll be really interesting when we do uh, later down the road, when we touch on some of the other um, stories like this, because the man who knew too much has the similar kind of tropes as well mm-hmm. as um, um, secret agent, um, the for, uh, foreign correspondent. You're going to see this kind of formula a few times. And I think, the way I kind of look at it is that the formula is meaningless in the same way the bond formula is meaningless. It's more about what you do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't really matter to me ultimately that we are kind of seeing the same type of story. It's all about the locales, the characters, you know, the energy that um, Hitchcock can bring in the set pieces. Oh, sure. I wasn't actually, you know, lamping on North by Northwest or this film for being similar it's just interesting for me seeing them both for the first time for this podcast how similar they were but then obviously it had the same director oh yeah yeah and i mean as we've seen too like um you know um the writer charles bennett wrote a huge chunk of those movies as well so you're gonna see similarities for sure yeah i think i prefer the opening of this film than mata hari for instance well, you were uh, a little um, saddened, though, that Mr. Memory didn't do a sexy dance, though, right? Well, I was hoping for it, or at least we got to see the ladies afterwards or something, because, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I was promised them, but I didn't get to see them. No, it's just like with Matahari, you kind of get the concept of the film straight away, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's like we have to get Matahari. Whereas mm-hmm. in 39 Steps, it's quite confusing the first time you watch it. Yeah. You know, for the first 20 minutes or so, you don't really know where this film is going. Yeah, it's very much Hitchcock throwing you into the mystery. You are, from the point of view of um, uh, Hanny's character, of trying to figure things out, which is one of my favorite setups of Hitchcock, where, you know, it's this kind of character that you get tossed into a mystery and has to figure it out along with the audience. Yeah, which I think I probably enjoy more, even though they do tend to confuse me. I mean, I was confused the first time I watched North by Northwest. I didn't really understand some of the things. And I've watched this twice now, and I picked up on a few more mm-hmm. little bits and bobs second time around. I wasn't as confused, fortunately. Maybe I've gotten better at following plots. Um, I do just want to say, based on that that opening, though, I, I think Mr. Memory's uh, gig is probably the worst gig you could ever have. Now, Scott, I'm something of a Mr. Memory as well. Um, throw some, you know, give me any question you'd like answered. 
Uh, who won the Premiership Football League last year in the UK? Oh. <laughs> Boo! <laughs> Boo! Well, I'm more of a, a novice Mr. Memory. I'm not quite at the stage level yet. Um, let's just say my brain is not going to be donated to the British Museum. <laughs> no, sir. I, I don't get stage fright. I, I'm actually quite good in front of talking with crowds and that sort of thing. I don't know how you are with crowds, but I don't know how I would deal with people shouting things at me on stage. Um well, you should know how I am at cr- with crowds, considering you've seen me in front of a crowd several times. But um... I, I think me and a couple of our friends don't count as a crowd. Oh, that's that's so sad. It's so true. <laughs> <laughs> For those that don't know, uh, with my other podcast, Subspace Transmissions, we've done um, live panels at the Las Vegas Star Trek Con a couple times. And yeah, there was one year we were opposite Patrick Stewart, and that was a grim year for attendance. <laughs> There, there came a moment, I think it may have been this one or one of the other years, where they opened it up for questions at the end. And then Cam and Tyler both looked at me uh, as the man who should ask a question because no one else was. I think looked is the wrong word, more like stared down. <laughs> oh, I felt it. <laughs> and the best part was you, like, hands in your pockets, looking at the floor. <laughs> I, I pretended to get a phone call and I walked off. Yeah, but no one has ever booed us. So, like, yeah, to be in the role of Mr. Memory and have people, like, just yelling and booing, that would be very depressing. And he's got, like, the rowdy London bar crowd as well. How do you even do that show? Because in those days, did he even have a microphone? No, you wouldn't have him. You would just project. That People were taught to project to the rafters. How is that even possible? <laughs> I imagine you'd get a lot of, huh? What? Yeah. Speak up, mate. Yeah, people have no reason to ever complain nowadays when they get a seat, you know, at the back of the room or something with modern, Mm. like, microphone techniques and all that, or technology, I should say. I mean, um, back in the day, you had it rough when you're in the back row. I I know we're talking about a different film, but one of my favorite gags of the last sort of 10 years in films came from the movie Shazam. Okay. I, I don't know if you. I'm sure you saw the film. Oh yeah. There's a moment. There's a moment where Shazam and the bad guy played by oh Mark Strong. Yeah, Mark Strong. They're they're flying in the air, and I think Mark Strong is you know, pontificating his evil plan or something like that. But they're quite far apart, and then Shazam just shouts out, "I can't hear you." That was actually really good. I do remember that moment and laughing out loud in the theater when I saw that. That was actually very clever. Yeah, I, I imagine you'd get a lot of that. But yeah, that, that I, I did enjoy the opening of the film altogether, though. But Cam, here is a question for you from the opening of the film. Would you take someone home with you that you've just met and then starts, you know, not wanting to be seen through the windows and wanting the lights turned off? Would you just kick them out of the house? Because that it felt very creepy for me. It was very weird. And uh, I got to say, old Hanny there... Um... He is a fascinating character because, like, this movie gives you no real backstory on this guy. And so a lot of the movie, I'm like, who is this guy? Because you're right. Like, it is very strange. This woman, Annabella Smith, approaches him, or at least she claims that's her name, played by Lucy Mannheim. And basically is just like, can I come back to your place? And, uh, you know, there's been something of a mob. A gun has gone off during the Mr. Memory show. And so... Um, you know, there's been chaos, they've run out in the streets, and she just is like, can I just come home with you? Which, 
you know, it's not played as like a like, ooh la la, of course. No. It's more just like matter of fact of like, yes, sure, no problem. Yeah, sure. Come on. Oh, do you want some dinner? What what would you like? Do you want some herring? Sure. Here, have some fish. You know, like it's so weird. <laughs> the entire setup is just bizarre. Like I I've had some interesting uh experiences with people that I've met out and then gone home with in my days. After my panel. <laughs> <laughs> I, I took the other person watching home afterwards yeah <laughs> um but i don't think i've ever offered them fish <laughs> that I, I i was making notes because there's a couple points where people are just like you want some herring and i'm like is this a british thing like is scott making herring for everyone who comes to visit because you know when i come to visit there i don't really want herring handed to me <laughs> that's what we're gonna do we're gonna eat herring and i'm gonna push you down the steps at the royal albert hall Yes. Well, you've got me at least at 50% of that. I'll take it. I'll take it. But in terms of like a hookup, I I, I assume he thought he was going to get some? I would think so. And I mean, this is 1935. So we do have the production codes, the Hayes Code in effect. So my guess is they would be wanting to minimize any sort of, uh, you know, sexual um, themes going on in that moment. Um but it does play kind of interesting. Yeah, I agree. But then you do get some very interesting sort of spy talk or agent talk, I should say. Yeah, she doesn't like the word spy. She does not. So I guess we're agent hards for the rest of this podcast. <laughs> uh, but that, that, that's probably some of the more intriguing bit of the film. But then before you know it, she's got a knife in the back and sort of gyrating onto the bed next to him. Yeah, not gyrating in the right way, right? Well, not the way he wanted. Yeah. Um, I got to say, I love this Annabella Smith character. Um, I would watch an entire movie about her just running secret agent jobs. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought like um, Lucy Mannheim had this, you know, really just, she was very appealing in this small role. And uh, when that character shows up with a knife in her back, which kind of echoes the knife in the back in North by Northwest, actually. Um, on my list. Yeah. Um I was definitely um, a little bummed just because I was like, oh, this character is so cool. Because, yeah, revisiting this movie, I mean, I hadn't seen it since I was 17. And um, um, I uh, just enjoyed it a lot. And just the economical storytelling of this one is pretty astonishing as well as the editing. But just the way it, it tosses you from plot point to plot point very, like, effectively, you know, I was bummed to see this character go. But at the same time, I was like, you know, I would give this movie a lot of points for never, you know, running a moment or a, you know, character or a theme into the ground. Like it kind of gets the most it can out of a moment and moves on to the next. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't sit in anything. It kind of it has a good pace to the film. Mm-hmm. It really does. And I was really curious how you felt in terms of the storytelling in this one versus Matahari and maybe even with uh, regards to the editing. Out of the two films, I would say I preferred this. But interestingly, I think this film had a weaker second half. Okay. Whereas I think Matahari was fairly consistent. Now that's interesting because, yeah, I was less of a fan of the second half of Matahari than uh, huh. than I think you were, yeah. No, i tell you what I did complain about. I complained about the love story in Matahari. And I wanted to have more of the spy intrigue, or agent intrigue, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think that the love interest was more of the predominantly the second half. So that's probably where I'm getting this from. But yeah, I found this film when they got a bit more lovey dovey 
basically after the the scene in the, the the sort of in later on in the film, I felt like it kind of then took a downturn for me. Right. This is where um, I was referencing earlier the Clark Gable effect. Um, Clark Gable's a huge star at this point in time, and the original book that this movie's based on, this is a very loose adaptation. And in the book, um, there's no Annabella and um, there's no Pamela. So um, this Pamela character is really interesting in the way that, you know, she obviously plays a very prominent role in this story. And the entire time I'm watching this movie, I couldn't help but think of the Frank Capra film. It happened one night, which came out in one year earlier in 1934 and starred um, Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert. And in that in that film, it's a sort of um, screwball romantic comedy, but he plays a reporter who gets paired off with this um, sort of spoiled um, heiress character who's run away from her family. And it is a road movie where these two characters squabble throughout and slowly fall in love and, you know, basically travel throughout the U.S. And um, that movie was an enormous hit. That movie swept the Oscars. It took Best Actor, Actress, you know, Director, Picture, um, probably Writing as well. And I could not help but wonder how much of an impact It Happened One Night had on this movie, which also is pairing off a, um, you know, mustached kind of uh, roguish gentleman with, you know, an attractive actress who's, uh, you know, a very good match for him verbally. And in this case, having the two of them handcuffed together on a cross-country trip. So um, I couldn't help but wonder if there was some very major influence going on there. Having no idea about that film, I, I can only assume they probably did take something from it. But from my naive perspective, it just didn't feel like that's what the film should have been about. Okay, right, yeah, because I mean, the book obviously isn't right. So, yeah, I, it was probably in my mind there was more to the spy story and and the thirty nine steps as an organization and that sort of thing. We didn't really get much of that past a bit where he met her again i say her when he met pamela again yeah i mean pamela is introduced in a <laughs> blink and you'll miss it kind of way with uh you know him getting onto a train and then trying to um you know hide himself because he's wanted for murder at this point and so he just like storms into her cart and like then walks over to her and goes darling and starts kissing her hoping that the uh authorities will walk right past and i mean i laughed out loud at that moment but honestly, when Pamela reappeared later in the movie, I, I was kind of like, is this the same character? Because she's not set up in a big way to be a character at that point. I did exactly the same thing. It took me a minute for my brain to go, oh, because they actually mentioned it. That, oh, it's her. Right. Whereas that, that person on the train could have been anyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I actually was, I think, a bigger fan of the Pamela material once they were handcuffed together and on the run. I found a lot of the comedy of their interactions actually very effective. And I loved moments where he's telling her his quote unquote real life story of, you know, his his slow um, descent into murder and <laughs> this like grim life he's led. I actually found stuff like that really funny. And I thought that... Um, Madeline Carroll had just the right amount of kind of vinegar in her performance where she's going back at him. Like I really bought their kind of squabbling chemistry. Which I could say that was enjoyable and I liked seeing it. But as soon as she found out that he was telling the truth, it's like she got googly eyes over him and that was it. 
That's always the issue, right? In that type of story where you kind of are enjoying the the rapid fire banter of the um you know the squabbling like and it's you know in those days they would write that sort of dialogue very well it happened one night same thing but once it does turn into that no now we're in love it does become less interesting no i i agree there it's, it, it's just less friction and i think friction creates the laugh yeah yeah i can totally see that yeah i mean it's way more fun when he's just like you know the two of them are basically at odds dragging each other through the scottish highlands yeah, or well, that scene where the, the innkeeper's wife keeps coming in and out and he's having to like hide the handcuffs in different ways and that's that's fun. Well what I do appreciate mostly. though about the the romance though is the way that Hitchcock doesn't overstate it. Like we don't have scenes like say um well in Matahari where you have these like <laughs> pronouncements of love that are over the top and melodramatic. Um I like that Hitchcock works so much of it visually. I really am just a huge fan of the final shot of this movie where, you know, these characters have been handcuffed together throughout this movie or through a huge chunk of this movie. And the final shot is is them just holding hands. And, you know, you don't even see their faces. It's just a shot of their hands connecting. So, like, I, I, you know, I think there's a level of sophistication going on in the visual storytelling that I appreciate. Um, And I I do think you could have done a way lousier version of this where the characters just turn and profess their loves in the fi- you know their love in the final moments yeah there's far less five minute soliloquies about how much they love each other i like that he's more targeted and limited with his use of the love story uh it's it, it doesn't turn into this whole like googly-eyed thing but i for me it was less interesting seeing any of that as soon as she found out he was telling the truth that switch just went and they weren't really bantering anymore to be fair to the movie, though, I feel like that's in like the last 15 minutes or something. Like it's, you know, this movie moves pretty quickly and I, she doesn't even really come into play until like almost halfway through. Yeah, I think it's around about the 50 minute mark when he's giving that speech, which yeah. is another funny scene and another Hitchcock trope of mistaken identity again. Yeah, it, did that remind you at all of the auction scene, the scene where he has to give the big political speech? It's exactly on my list as that. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. that distraction scene. Although in this case, um, Cary Grant is using the auction as a distraction um, intentionally. Whereas in this case, it's him, you know, again, he, the wrong man scenario. He's now the wrong man who has to give a speech, which I actually find very entertaining because, you know, they always say the you know worst fear of anyone is public speaking. Um, and uh, here's a guy who's on the run, wanted for murder and has to give a big speech. I actually found that pretty funny. I don't know how you feel about this, but this is how it came across to me when I, as I say, I was writing down sort of a comparison of the two films, 39 Steps and and North by Northwest. Uh, It feels like Hitchcock really liked 39 Steps and then wanted to do a Hollywood version of it. And then that's how North by Northwest happened because there's, there's so much that I can connect between the two. Yeah. I mean, Hitchcock just really loved these espionage stories. Um, So, you're going to notice as well when we do The Man Who Knew Too Much, because there is an Amer- a, uh, American remake of that starring uh, Jimmy Stewart that he made as well that actually um, predates North by Northwest and also has a lot of those tropes. So um, I don't know that it's so much him remaking um, 39 Steps, although I should say he did consider 39 Steps one of his favorite films that he ever made. But I think it was more just trying this formula over and over again and trying to bring new ideas and characters to it. 
Um, it's kind of like, you know, the auteur theory is that these, um, you know, directors will revisit the same themes and ideas over and over and over again because they're just obsessed with them and they want to get them right. And Hitchcock would kind of bounce between these sorts of wrong men um, accused espionage stories but also things that were more psychological. You know, he had his kind of his psychological obsessions you'll see in, you know, Psycho and Rear Window and Spellbound and all that sort of stuff. But then you have these espionage ones that he's always repeating. Kind of like the way that, you know, Tim Burton movies are all about these loners looking for acceptance. Hitchcock had kind of his obsessions as well. This is by no means a critique. I think it was just just jumped out to me as someone who isn't as well versed in Hitchcock's uh, back catalogue of films. But, I mean, you could look at you know the MCU. Any of their introductory films are more or less the same format, but mm-hmm. it's not necessarily a bad thing. No, no, yeah, no, I agree hundred percent. And yeah, I didn't want to admit, say that you were uh, thinking of it as a negative, more just in terms of yeah that the connections between this and North by Northwest is just. It's just a matter of Hitchcock's work where he's a guy who really loved to delve into these stories for whatever reason. Hitchcock, one of the great you know elements of his life he would talk about was when he was a young boy. Um, he did something bad, I guess, and his father sent him to the police station um, with a note that said, you know, my son has been bad. Would you put him in a prison cell or in a jail cell for like 15 minutes or something like that? And so the police did it. And Hitchcock, for the rest of his life, was terrified of the police and terrified of being accused of things he didn't do. And so that carries over into the work in a big way where you have these characters who have been accused of, a, you know, usually murder and have to go on the run, even though they're innocent. That's really interesting. I didn't even know that. But it does make sense. That sort of flowed through in both of those films that we've mentioned. Yeah. I was curious, though, what, what you thought of the Hanny character as played by Robert Donat. Like, when we talk about the Cary Grant character in North by Northwest, uh, Roger Thornhill is a very specific personality. Whereas I didn't find that to be the case with Hanny, and I wonder if that's for a reason. He did feel more... I don't want to say generic, because when you put him in that auditorium at the start, when the, the memory man is performing, he's the one man in the room that looks... I don't want to say Hollywood, but he definitely stands out in a room full of punters. Yeah, he's got that Clark Gable mustache going. Yeah, and you know he's got a different accent somewhat, although certainly not a Canadian accent. Maybe a 1930s Canadian accent. What do I know? Sure, sure. But I, I, I enjoyed his performance. I, I didn't feel like I ever really got a grasp on him as a person. Yeah. Only that maybe he's quite quick on his feet. Yeah. I was wondering how much of that was intentional because... This character, and I, you know, I've talked in the past how often these audience avatar characters can be really boring. I didn't find Robert Donat's um, performance in this movie boring at all. I actually found it quite a very good grounding force for this movie. But he's definitely portrayed as a bit of an audience identification character. Mm-hmm. But there's just enough clever dialogue or wit to this character that I didn't feel like I was watching, you know, a Sam Worthington, you know, blank slate. <laughs> Sorry about that, Sam Worthington. <laughs> but like, what do we really know about this man? We know next to nothing. I was just racking my brain while you said that. I mean, obviously he's from Canada. He's here temporarily in the UK. I don't even know what his job is. Yeah. No, nothing. Whereas you compare him to sort of, I'll back to North by Northwest, I guess, but Roger Thornhill, for instance. In the first 10 minutes, you, you've seen him talking to his secretary, barking orders at her, 
doing plans for his mother to go out to the theater. You've got all that sort of the character development of his job, and then he's abducted. You have a lot of a grounding for that guy, and I I don't think he's as approachable as Robert Donat as uh, the character of Hannay. Yeah, it's true. Like Roger Thornhill feels like Hitchcock taking the concept, you know, this this kind of bare bones um, man on the run concept, but like locking in a very, I mean, let's just say it. Roger Thornhill is a weird dude. It's like taking a weird, um, you know, very comic figure and making him the center of the movie. Versus here, where Robert Donat's character, Hanny, is not really a you know wacky, fun character. He has sharp comedic dialogue, but he's not like a he's not a wacky comedy character at all. No, he's not. His uh, he hasn't got his slapstick scenes like Roger does when say he's drunk in the police station or something like that. I would say there's more of a grounded realism to this movie, and when I say grounded realism, um, we have to also acknowledge we're talking about Alfred Hitchcock, whose movies. I mean, didn't really embrace realism, I think, for good reasons. Um, I think they're better because of that. Um, But the character feels grounded in a real way where he is reacting much more in ways that um, I think the average person would try to. Like Roger Thornhill. I don't know that a lot of people would do the same things as Roger Thornhill, whereas I feel like Hanny does things that people might do very you know people with who are resourceful and have some tact about them well i'm i'm just gonna say i I don't intend to jump out of any moving trains anytime soon (laughs) how about you oh i've done it so many times scott it's old hat at this point you are a a man on the run there's no (laughs) stopping you cam that's right (laughs) yeah I, i overall i was I feel like you could actually approach the character of Hanny a bit more than, than anything else that I've seen from Hitchcock, but then you also lose that quirkiness that I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, as I compared him to before, he, he's obviously quite quick on his feet. He's able to deduce things quite well, but I don't know. I, he wasn't as enjoyable and I haven't been left with as many memorable moments as perhaps I was with North by Northwest. I feel like I'm more sympathetic, though, to Hanny than I am to Thornhill. Because Hanny, there's, like, he doesn't come across as a guy who's kind of making light of events or commenting on them as they're happening. Mm-hmm. When you have Hanny, you know, showing up at that farmer's house and just desperate for help, I buy more of the desperation of this character. Um, which, you know, North by Northwest isn't really trying to do that. It's much more, more of a comedic light-hearted film whereas i feel like with this one i'm more drawn in by the plight that haney is in i mean it does seem like desperate times especially the bit where you mentioned with the, the farmhouse in the moors in scotland mm-hmm. you know he he's literally up against it by this point you know his only port of call is to you know rock up to a farmer's house and, and basically plead to have a bed for the night just to get away from the cops whereas i don't think Thorn whoever really encounters anything that bad. No. So yeah, I think I, I I'd say Hitchcock does have a lot more grounding in this film than North by Northwest, which I appreciate. What did you think of that whole sequence with the farmer and his wife? I felt he did a lot, and by he I mean Hitchcock, I should say, with basically nothing. Mm-hmm. Because you get the sense of the relationship between the husband and wife without them really acknowledging it between them, but you can tell that she longs for her time in Glasgow and then the big city as it were whereas the farmer is just this you know buttoned up old style dude who doesn't like any of this new style shit 
I felt so bad for this woman. Uh, Margaret is the character's name, although in the credit she just listed as Crofter's wife. Um, this poor, mm. poor woman. My God. She does not have a good run. And even when uh, Hanny runs off with the husband's jacket, she sort of looks longingly at him as he runs away. And you just think, God, you must have it bad. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, the fact that this guy who's wanted for murder, she's like, please, you know, this is her ticket to the big city. The fact that when, you know, they're conversing, when her husband's not there, you know, she wants to ask all these questions about London. You know, Scott, do all women in London paint their toenails? Not just the women. <laughs> the men and the children too. Nice. Um, but just like, you know, he says, well, we could talk about this when your husband gets back. And she's like, he wouldn't like that. This poor woman is just like in seclusion in the Scottish Highlands with this guy who seems so boring and miserable. And like, you have that moment later where he's taken off with a coat and um, um, Henny's been shot, but the bullet's been stopped by a Bible in the pocket of the coat. And then we cut to that farm where the husband realizes his jacket's gone and he like slaps her. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is going to like really linger with me for a long time. This poor woman trapped out there. Well, you just think this guy who stopped by, who's been set on this plot of intrigue by nothing that he chose uh, has now adversely affected the life of some couple living in the moors of Scotland. Yeah. She's going to have it even worse now and you don't even get any follow up or anything to feel good about it. So yeah, you do have this sort of sense of, sadness about that couple well the wife i should say my hope is that she hops a truck to like london at some point (laughs) sort of whips off her you know hat throws it away takes off her you know apron and then runs away yeah did you pick up on a significant age difference between the two because when henny gets there he, he meets the wife he says to the farmer's daughter and he goes wife and in my mind i'm like i didn't really notice that drastic an age difference between these two Oh, I did. I actually got it. I knew exactly what they were aiming at with that. But I also noticed that they really played up the makeup on the uh, the crofter, uh, John Laurie, who we're referring to as the, the farmer, but the crofter is the correct one. Um, but it seems like he's got sort of like darkened lines with the makeup on his face to make him look older. Yeah. Uh, and, and sort of more you know, buttoned up, as I said. I think the problem for me is always that I feel like everyone in a movie in the 1930s or 20s looks like they're pushing 50. <laughs> I can kind of see that. I mean, you think about the age of uh, Cary Grant playing Roger Thornhill and there was a big difference there. Yeah, well, he was in his 50s. <laughs> yeah, but then his mother was like, wasn't she played by someone who was three years older than him? Something like that. Yeah, like maybe yeah, five was, or six. Yeah, it was a bit weird. But I, I did like what Hitchcock did with the uh, the Crofter and the Crofter's wife. It, 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 for two basically insignificant characters, they actually leave a bit of a lasting impression. They do, yeah. Um, yeah, around the time they would have shot this, the Crofter, the actor who played him, John Laurie, would have been about 38 years old. So I don't know. Like, that's the thing. I look at this man. He was now younger than I am. And I go, that is not a young man. <laughs> no, he looks weathered. But then... You probably would look like that if you lived in a farm with no central heating in the middle of the Scottish Highlands. Well, I'll never find out. So, uh, yeah, sure. I'll I'll go with that. What are you talking about? That's like day two of your trip to the UK. (laughs) You just dropped me there with a map. Yeah, I'll come back a week later and see how old you look. (laughs) That that would be amazing. And I look exactly the same as the crofter. (laughs) Maybe you found yourself a wife you've stolen from someone. (laughs) Same accent and everything. 
<laughs> Actually, it's funny you mention the accents. As as someone who who knows a lot of Scottish people, I, I, Scottish heritage, um, they, they drop in and out with their accents. Mm-hmm. They've never. I mean, for people, for a lady who comes from Glasgow, and Glasgow has got one of the thickest Scottish accents you can find. Uh, they've definitely toned it down for for viewing audiences. Yeah, do you think that would have been for UK audiences, or do you think that would have been for potentially US audiences? It's it's got to be for US. Like, if you put me in a room with someone from Glasgow, I'll probably struggle a little bit and then get with it. Whereas, I if I put you in the room with someone from Glasgow and then ask you to get directions from them, I think you would come out more confused. Yeah, because Peggy Ashcroft, the woman who plays the crofter's wife, was British. So they were also just casting British actors as these Scottish characters. The person I found most convincing in terms of a Scottish accent was the the wife of the innkeeper. Mm, okay, yeah. Hers, hers seemed pretty spot on. The rest of it was, was quite questionable, but yeah. While we're talking about characters like this, I noticed a big theme in this movie is this weird like conflict between the people in the country and the people in the cities. You have a lot of scenes where characters, these country-based characters, have very negative things to say about the people of the city. And it's this very, you know, this um, very strong remark on, I guess, the class system of the time, potentially. I'm just curious if you, as someone who lives in the UK, had any insight into this that I lack as a Canadian over on the other side of the pond. A little bit, I would say, but that's mostly because it's definitely it's definitely changed now, because you'll find places like you know Glasgow, Aberdeen, Inverness are all big cities now. I mean, not on not on par with say London, but definitely on par with somewhere like Birmingham or other big places I could name that you would probably know. Mm-hmm. So they they're more city like now. So, but what you'll find is people will still refer to each other as you know from the city or from the country and we we will exchange jokes and words between each other but it's all in good fun we don't we don't tend to uh actually bad mouth each other with with malice and you notice a lot of the hostility in this movie which i just found really interesting um i guess just maybe a sign of the times of the 1930s and what hitchcock was interested in exploring i mean there was a lot more money in the cities than than i imagine in the rural areas at that point than there is now where you could you could a lot of people who work in London live outside of the M25, which is the ring road around London. They live in rural areas and then you know transport themselves into London just to work. So there's there's money kind of everywhere now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just I found that interesting. It's always I, I find it very compelling to watch Hitchcock movies and just how he manages to work themes into what could be you know you reference like the Marvel movies earlier or James Bond movies. Those movies don't have a lot of heavy themes going on, but Hitchcock takes these very, you know, escapist vehicles and works in a lot of themes that I think are, you know, elevate the material. Yeah, and you're right. It is referenced a few times throughout the film and in different ways, the sort of class system. Even look at, say, the beginning of the film where the memory man is opening on what is a a small town hall sort of theatre. Mm-hmm. And then obviously he's done quite well for himself a few days later. He's playing at the London Palladium and everyone is sort of dressed slightly better and there isn't a pub full of rowdy lads. Yeah, very true. And there's not a big brawl that breaks out. No, exactly. Uh, It's almost more polite there, uh, which it would be at the Palladium. Yeah. Um, I I was curious if, if you are recording at this very moment from the Palladium. 
I'm not. I'm actually recording from Lime Grove Studios, which is where this place was actually filmed, funnily enough. Oh, nice. Very nice. And a little factoid for everyone. Harry Palmer's house is right around the corner. Oh, my God. It's like the magical land that uh, I just have to visit. You have to. I don't know, but I, I have to imagine that Ipcris File was filmed at Lime Grove Studios as well. Yeah, I don't remember. I'm sure we probably looked that up at the time, um, but I yeah, I can't remember. Um, I was curious, though, what you thought of, I guess you could say, the villain of this movie, um, Professor Jordan, played by Godfrey Turrell, um, who um, shows up in this movie and has a reveal that reminded me a lot of a movie we talked about recently. Oh, I'm very glad you mentioned that, because I wrote that down too. I only wrote two notes on the professor, uh, or Professor Jordan, I should say. One is that he is mysterious, because he really doesn't give much away. You don't actually find out any of the 39-step plan from him. You actually find it out from the memory man. And then there's the the finger reveal. Yeah. Mm. Now, when we spoke about this particular film, we noted that it had taken some things from a previous story. Do you think they took the the finger reveal from this story too? Oh, yeah. So a cloak and dagger you're talking about, and that Mm -hmm. was inspired by the the book, I think The Window, or I I can't remember what the name of the book was, but there was a movie called The Window that was based on that that story that Cloak and Dagger had to credit. I don't know, because Cloak and Dagger had such a heavy... Um, level of Hitchcock references in it that it would not shock me if this was a Hitchcock reference in Cloak and Dagger where the the woman pulls off the glove and is missing two fingers. Although to draw a parallel, when that was revealed in Cloak and Dagger, I freaked out and because I, I didn't see it coming. And I actually didn't see it coming in this film either. So apparently I'm blind to fingers. You would have fallen for uh, old Professor Jordan's schemes. Yeah, all you had to do was put a glove on. I would have been well in. Probably would have yeah. ended up shooting myself. <laughs> I thought this character of the villain, I mean, I can appreciate this movie is not that interested in obsessing over the villains the way that some other movies are. So they're more just elements of the plot. But um, I thought that uh, Professor Jordan was suitably um, like warm and inviting. Like he's someone who I believe would con me in the same way that old couple would have conned me in um, Cloak and Dagger. If Hanny hadn't have known about the finger, I'm fairly certain that Professor Jordan would have just played him along until they shot him. Oh, totally. Like, he would have been successful. It's all because of that finger um, information passed on by um, Annabella Smith. But then there's also the, again, similarity between this and the character in North by Northwest, who I can't remember the name of, but the bad guy in that. Mm -hmm. Where he's more just sort of a guy trying to do a job. Yeah, he's very lackadaisical about being a criminal like he's not someone who's like he's not a bond villain he is not dr no No or goldfinger well the one thing he has over the guy from north by northwest is that he does actually shoot someone Mm -hmm. yeah that's true um yeah mr memory there at the finale i loved the whole setup of that finale i like that the movie's bookended with these two sequences in theaters um with mr memory and the fact that mr memory all along has been an accomplice in this scheme to pass um, information about, um, I guess, airplane technology to yeah. the, you know, to the enemy states or whatever. Um, we never find out who this information's going to. Um, I'm going to guess the Germans. This is 1935, right? Yeah, so that would make sense. 
They never specify, but that would be the guess. But yeah, so Mr. Memory, all along, this character you thought was just kind of a, you know, a fun, gimmicky character at the start of the movie, is the key to the entire story in the 39 Steps. That calls back to what I said earlier when I was sort of talking about my thoughts on 1930s, 40s films, where I didn't think they were had the complex stories that would have a character that is briefly there at the beginning appear at the end and it all tie together. And so that bit blew me away because I, I actually just wrote off the memory man as just a gimmick to get Hannah in the theater to meet uh, Annabelle Smith. Yeah, like the fact that this movie that's made, you know, what, like 85 years ago, um, wow, completely fools me, you know, like is really impressive. Like I'd seen this movie, as I said, when I was like 17, but I did not remember a whole lot other than just kind of the basic premise of this guy and this woman on the run you know, handcuffed together, but rewatching it, I was fooled all over again because it just never occurred to me. I, it's like we're trained now to almost look to older movies to expect kind of what's in front of us where you do have, you know, the Jordan character. Oh, he's the villain. Okay. I get this. I can go along with this. Mm -hmm. And a lot of movies of that era, that would be the case. Um, you know, the, the lesser movies, but I think Hitchcock is so clever and ahead of his time that you know, you see it in the film craft, in like the cinematography of this movie. There's beautiful shots. The editing is fantastic and, you know, really economical and fast paced. Um, but you have this reveal of, you know, Mr. Memory that I never saw coming and it completely works. Did you get the whistling cue? Um, no, I didn't actually. And um, I don't think you're supposed to. I don't think you're supposed to remember it from the start of the movie so that you have that aha moment when it appears at the end. Yeah, I, I wasn't going to like make something up and say I got it. I I didn't even remember the music cue. And then I just thought he was whistling an annoying song. And then, bang, it will hit you at the end. You're like, oh, wow. Yeah, and I love the psychology, too, of the memory character who can't hide the fact that he's involved in the scheme. Like, he has this, like, I don't know, compulsive disorder where when you ask him what the 39 steps are, he can't be like, I don't know. It's like, I don't know if it's based in pride or just a complete inability to hide the fact that he knows something. I think it's more of a case of like, he has to espouse his information. Otherwise it will haunt him or something like that. I didn't really understand that bit. I think it's based in psychology. I think this guy just, I mean, the abilities he has are not normal. Like to be able to memorize, you know, all of these facts to the level he has it. I think there's something to his psychology that requires him to spew this information out. So I, I think even if he doesn't want to give this information, he has to. That would make sense. It, and also why he actually blurted out in a crowd of people. Yeah, no kidding. I, it's, it, I, I think you're right though, when you say, it's more to do with Alfred Hitchcock's uh, abilities and him being ahead of his time for him to craft a story this way. And it, yeah, it makes you think if he was cracking out films today, what would he be making? I don't think this would be a great time to be Alfred Hitchcock nowadays. Um, it would be really, I think a bummer. I think at best you hope that he is in that Chris Nolan camp where he's mm. successful enough that he's able to make his own projects um, you know, the way he wants to make them. But nowadays, it seems like if you're a director of note, um, they're just like, okay, what superhero franchise are you going to do? You know, what what Star Wars movie are you going to sign on for? 
Can you imagine an MCU movie directed by Alfred Hitchcock? Well, he can run with this one for a second. Um, I'm trying to think of like what kind of character would grab him because we think of his themes. He likes to deal with human psychology. He likes to deal with, um, you know, people on the run. Um, I would say ordinary people. I don't think he's really into the superhero type of characters. Um, I'm not really sure. Like I could see him uh, maybe doing something with like a Hawkeye movie where Hawkeye is like falsely accused of something. Like, I feel like it would be a stripped down character. It's not going to be, you know, Captain America or Iron Man. I could, I think he would also have a lot of fun with the Black Widow character. If we're sticking in Marvel, I think they're probably the best choices. He's definitely not a Moon Knight kind of guy. No, no. Uh, Although I would love to see an Alfred Hitchcock Moon Knight movie. <laughs> that, that's a combination I never thought I'd hear. Yeah. But then you think he would also be very well suited to something like Batman. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. But I wonder how much interest you would have in Batman, um, you know, in terms of all the gimmicks and the Batmobile and all that stuff. I feel like he would want to keep it fairly stripped down. Which is basically what Christopher Nolan tried to do. Yeah, yeah. Although there was a version of um, Batman Begins before Christopher Nolan jumped on with uh, Darren Aronofsky, who did, you know, Requiem for a Dream and Black Swan. Mm -hmm. He was developing where it was like real stripped down, where like, it, Batman was just kind of this crazy guy who had like a, you know, like a like some sort of car, and he had a mechanic build him like a Batmobile. He was not like the billionaire Bruce Wayne with all the gimmicks. It was just kind of like a crazed vigilante. I would have said I'd be interested to see what the new Batman they're making would come out with, but even that Batmobile looks quite souped up. It does, yeah, yeah. But so. anyway, yeah, we're 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 uh, way off topic. We're even off century. <laughs> Well, you know, it's tied to the idea of, you know, what does an Alfred Hitchcock do nowadays? It's it's an excellent question. Um, I just hope he'd have some freedom to do whatever he wants. You just have to worry about, like, what films he does for them, if you go by the old rule of one for them, one one for me. Yeah. I, I wouldn't want to see him do a Thor film. Oh, God. <laughs> no. Even the, even the comedy ones, I just wouldn't want to see it. Yeah, yeah. I think he's very witty and clever himself so i feel like he'd inject his own type of comedy to the movie but i don't need to see a broad broad comedy from alfred hitchcock i mean he made one called mr and mrs smith um and it's just not really his thing he's much better at working comedy you know kind of this dark comedy into his more i guess you could say serious films i i didn't know alfred hitchcock worked with angelina jolie and brad pitt <laughs> yeah he did the original version back in 1942 oh <laughs> Oh, whatever right. year it was. It might have been the 30s. I, th I think it was the 40s, but yeah. Did he ever get close to James Bond? Of course he did, yeah. He was one of the people that uh, flirted with uh, doing Dr. No, but uh, didn't... Or, sorry, I don't think it was Dr. No. I think it was actually Thunderball when they were trying to get a Bond project going before Dr. No, and uh, he circled it, but not that interested. That's a shame. Yeah. Well, is there any other characters you want to say a few things about? No, I think that sums up the characters for me. Um... Yeah, like, I, I don't feel like there was a weak link here. I think you can point to, say, like, the Professor Jordan character and be like, he's not as memorable. But I also think that's by design. I think he's supposed to blend in well. Well, I think that's how an actual agent, we'll use the word, should behave in real life. Even though he's against our cause, he's an agent of someone. And so he, he should just be a normal guy. Yeah, totally. And I had a question for you. Mm -hmm. Did you recognize 
the um the the young actress who played his daughter at the scene where there's the party in the house. I it was so fleeting. I I couldn't even tell you what her face was like. So no, I did not. It is fleeting. Um, she was played by an actress named Elizabeth Inglis, and the name not may not ring a bell, but that is Sigourney Weaver's mother. No way. Yep. There you go. That's a connection right there. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wonder how Alfred Hitchcock would have handled the Alien series. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> you know, he was a man who very much loved food and liked to comment on food in his movies, so I feel like the dinner table scene in Alien would be something very different. <laughs> but then is is his like movie cameo, is he wearing like the xenomorph head or something and just sort of walking past frame in one shot? Oh, that'd be amazing. But like walking a dog while he's doing it. <laughs> Trying to get onto a bus. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just tie all the Hitchcock cameos together. <laughs> uh, it's like the meta Stanley. That's good. <laughs> well, I mean, while we're on the subject of Hitchcock and tropes, before we t- tackle anything else, uh, he has a train sequence again in this film. But what you may not know about me, Cam is I'm a bit of an avid fan of trains. I don't think I did know this. And I, I know it will come as a surprise to you, listeners. Uh, I am a geeky guy who likes films in his 30s. Of course, I like trains. But one of my favorite trains growing up, because I used to collect model trains with my granddad when I was very young, uh, was the Flying Scotsman. Really? Oh, wow. Connections. I had... Indeed. As soon as I saw that train on the screen, it was probably the biggest pop this film got out of me. Because I had that model. I had had a few Flying Scotsman as a kid, actually, different uh, gauge track sizes. Um, But yeah, and so there was actually a bit of an inconsistency that I will point out using my train knowledge. Okay, go for it. Okay, so the Flying Scotsman uh, went from London to Edinburgh. Okay. In this film, they stop at Edinburgh and then keep on going towards Dundee. Mm. Oh, interesting. The Flying Scotsman never, ever did that. It literally went back and forth from London, uh, Paddington, if I remember correctly. Wow. Huh. Well, I guess artistic liberties. Yeah, we'll take it as that. But I I enjoyed seeing my... uh, That was my favourite train growing up, apart from Thomas. Why is it called the Flying Scotsman? Shouldn't that be the, the name of a plane? I think it was because it was the fastest way to get there. So at the time, it was like the speed and which. Sure. Which is not the funny answer, but it's the true one. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. That's fair enough. Um, Speaking of names of things, I was just curious how satisfied you were with the reveal of what the 39 steps are. I think I was more enthusiastic about how it was revealed as opposed to the actual information. I I actually almost had stopped caring about the 39 steps itself. Mm Mm-hmm or what it meant, and more just wanted to stop it being passed on. Right. Well, so when you find out that Mr. Memory is the the holder of the information, that was, you know, I quite enjoyed that rev- that revelation. It's interesting because I think that's one of Hitchcock's strengths, is he doesn't dangle mysteries in front of you um, to an obsessive degree. Like, he doesn't... The movie never hinges on what the mystery is, um, which I appreciate, uh, because I think some storytellers put too much emphasis on the mystery. And he definitely was playing fast and loose with the source material because in the actual book, the 39 steps are actual literal steps. And the name of the evil spy organization is Blackstone. 
So it's not, you know, the, the group was not called the 39 steps in the book. Um, and they actually toyed when they were developing this film with um, making the 39 steps um, inside Big Ben. Oh, as in physical steps. Yeah, like an actual location they oh. had to go to maybe for the finale. That would have also been quite an interesting mm-hmm. reveal. I'll, I'll admit that. But I, I did like the tie back to Mr. Memory. Yeah, I think that works the best. It bookends the movie and it makes it feel... I mean, at 86 minutes long, it feels like this very, as I've said before, economical, tight package of a movie that it's... You know, so many movies will talk about... You know, believe me, there's some Hitchcocks coming up. They're not all masterworks. Um, there's a couple that I can't wait for us to cover because... I mean, let's just say they are not fleet of foot. As in they're a bit slow? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a couple that are going to be a bit of a struggle. um, And I'm just genuinely interested in revisiting them because of the discussion we can have about them in contrast to Hitchcock's other espionage films. I mean, sure. The two that you've introduced me to so far have been hits in my book. So, yeah. I'm looking forward to tackling some of his lesser work. Yeah. And I'm actually also interested in visiting some of the other remakes of the 39 steps there's like at least one notable one from the 50s we'll probably do on this podcast i don't know about the others the others feel like kind of uh real obscure like out of print kind of things um but um i'd like to do at least one other and see how it measures up to this source material no i think we're going to do them all even the one you went to go see live (laughs) did you know there was a tv series called hanny that ran from 88 to 89 starring Richard Powell. Um, And it was actually him reprising his role. He was in a remake of the 39 steps in 1978, but this show ran for one season and it was all about the character Hanny from this movie. What was it like his life after finding out about the steps? I don't know. I read the synopsis on IMDb and I'm like, what the hell is this? I I thought it was actually maybe some sort of mistake that I was somehow stumbling across the wrong show, but um, it is a, based on John Buchan's novels. So, I mean, the fact there's five novels, um, well, maybe the material on this show just isn't covered in that one book. <laughs> well, there you have it, folks. Hanny Hard's coming to you soon. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> I did have a question for you before we wrap up, Cam. Mm. Not even Mr. Memory could tackle it. Are you ready? I'm ready. What does cause pip in poultry? I don't even understand the question. <laughs> okay, so a, a little bit of background for you. At the beginning of the film, uh, when Mr. Memory is taking questions from the crowd, an yep. old boy shouts out something and is told off by his wife. He then tries to shout out two more times to get his question answered. Yeah, I remember that scene. Yeah, and that's yeah. the question. What causes pip in poultry? In poultry? Exactly. What is pip? So I can answer the question. Pip is hardening of the tongue of a chicken. Oh. And what causes it is usually a respiratory disease, uh, and then they cough bacteria onto their tongue, and it causes it to harden. Well, then, you're the real Mr. Memory. You're dropping, like, flying um, Scotsman references, pip on chicken tongue references. I mean, come on, get this guy a stage, people. I'm just waiting for someone to ask me the question. (laughs) <laughs> yeah no kidding that's like the, those two questions are the only ones you can answer you're like putting plants in the audience <laughs> yeah so and we're done folks play me out thanks <laughs> and you're staring me down to ask, to ask the question and i'm not doing anything <laughs> i'm just like staring at the ground <laughs> yeah it, it all connects, connects. <laughs> right 
I think that leads us beautifully on to the question. Cam, does the 39 steps, the original, make the knock list? I think for me it does, because when we look at it, and this is an advantage I have that you don't, but when we look at it in the context of Alfred Hitchcock's career, it's such an important movie. I mean, this is the one that brings him over to America, or at least grabs the attention from Selznick that brings him over. It is technically, I think, just astonishing. A lot of these movies from the 30s don't necessarily hold up um, when you watch them now in terms of their film craft. I think this one still holds up beautifully. There's shots in it that are beautiful, like the one of them underneath the waterfall, um, for example. But just as an adventure story, this movie had me gripped from beginning to end. The comedy worked still very well, I thought. There was, you know, the odd joke. You're kind of like, I don't understand what they mean. But overall, you know, it had those high spirits. Um, And just as an espionage story, I enjoyed the hell out of it. That is very interesting. I did not think you would go down the yes route so so passionately. <laughs> I do think this is like one of the really, really good um, to great um, early Hitchcocks. Especially like that period, it's really rough and tumble um, where you've got stuff that's like really bad, like number 17, for example. But like this is to me like a home run for him, one of his earliest home runs. I suppose I'm not, not trying to cast doubt on the film itself. I just didn't expect you to sort of offer yourself up a yes as, as easy. I thought it might be a bit more of a deliberation. No, not with this one, no. Hmm. There's a, there's others I'll struggle more with when it comes to Hitchcock. Well, I I was going to go down the yes route even before we discussed it today. I was, I was quite set on it because I really did enjoy this film. Uh, and it, again, is a, another 1930s film that I would actually go back and rewatch. It's really interesting to me how accessible this movie is, because when I was watching this when I was 17, I didn't have the vocabulary necessarily to engage with movies of this era. And so there's a lot of movies you could have shown me from the 30s, 40s that would have left me kind of scratching my head as a teenager. But this one was so accessible that I think it shows just how well it's aged and how appealing it still is. I think you know, there's a lot of movies we'll tackle that are older that feel dated and kind of creaky. Whereas I feel like this one, you can say, well, it doesn't have the set pieces we would see in maybe another movie like this nowadays. But in terms of its energy and its skill and the characters, I think it holds up incredibly well. Yeah, we didn't really talk about the cinematography in this film, but there's some really fantastic shots. The one that stands out to me was when they're in the taxi cab going to the fake police station after they get handcuffed together and it kind of pulls out of the passenger side window around to the back of the car as it's driving off yeah and that's a shot you could do now oh yeah and let's just give some credit to bernard knowles was the name of the cinematographer um doesn't really look like he worked with hitchcock again but i mean what a beautiful looking movie yeah those shots of the moors and everything you'd love to see it in color yeah yeah, although I will say the black and white film uh, cinematography looks really beautiful. Like it, on my Criterion Blu-ray, it was very sharp looking. Yeah, I had heard there were some uh, dodgy copies of this film out there. You can actually watch it on YouTube now for free. Yeah, there's a lot because it's one of those movies that fell into a weird copyright issue where a lot of these kind of um, uh, lesser companies would just snap it up and then put it out on cheap DVDs. That makes sense. And then it was like a copy of a copy of a copy sort of thing. Exactly, one where there's a lot of popping and hissing. That's why I didn't really own it until Criterion put it out. Right, and if it's going to be on Blu-ray, it's going to be a good transfer. Yeah, exactly. Criterion puts a lot of care into their into their transfers. I'd like to potentially buy the um, Man Who Knew Too Much 
1934 version on Criterion as well. Well, I'm sure we'll cover it someday, so that might be the push for you to buy it. Yeah, might do. Right, well, it sounds like it's a yes from you and a yes from me. Yeah, we've got two Hitchcocks in the uh, in the knock canon now. Very uh, interesting. I'm I, Again, I just can't wait to get into some of the ones that, I don't want to say they're bad, but just are the ones that are maybe more polarizing. Yeah, I would like to see a film that isn't as well regarded as this. Even when I mentioned this film to my better half, um, she turned around and goes, oh, that's a classic. So I think it's even on her knock list. Yeah. Perfect. But yeah, so there you go. That's two yeses. And therefore, The 39 Steps is on the knock list. And of course, you can find the knock list at letterbox.com slash spyhards, where you can see all the films we've covered so far and some of the ones that are coming up. That's right. Support for Spyhards is brought to you by Manscaped. When it comes to below-the-waist grooming, nobody does it better. Manscaped's tech masterminds provide the most efficient tools an aspiring spy could hope for when it comes to prepping the family jewels. So Scott, what do you do to look after your double O's? Well, Cam, as you know, we work on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and that means sometimes we need to improvise. I've had to rely on all kinds of unreliable methods, including beard trimmers and even razor blades. And let's just say a couple of times my 007 almost became a 006. Put down the gold-cutting laser, Scott. (laughs) Because as Q once said, never let them see you bleed and always have a Manscaped strategy. Well, Manscaped delivers on both fronts, thanks to their new and improved Lawnmower 3.0. This state-of-the-art electric hair trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade, a 90-minute battery, and the company's pioneered advanced skin-safe technology. Agents can trust their safety will be guaranteed when it comes to field work. Plus, this technology is waterproof and features an illuminating LED light for close-up precision. Even if you're swimming with sharks, you'll be able to keep the British end up. And this trimmer's high-speed 70,000 RPM motor will never compromise your stealth mode thanks to Manscaped's quiet stroke technology. These guys understand the demands of the lifestyle and are even throwing in a USB-powered charging stand as well. Spies do tend to live out of a suitcase, after all. Don't I know it. Experience it firsthand yourself. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SPYHARDS. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S at manscaped.com. We officially grant you all a license to trim. Your thunderballs will thank you. Now, Cam, what are we looking at next week? We are going to 2007 to tackle the third Jason Bourne film, The Bourne Ultimatum. Indeed we do. And I think we have some very, very special agents dropping in from the ceiling. The lads over from the Impodible podcast will be joining us for that one. Awesome. So, folks, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch the Bourne Ultimatum before next week's episode. And don't forget to follow us discreetly, of course, at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, good luck among the shadows.